0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the monthly Braille Institute's Child Development Lecture. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and today we're going to be talking about how to make the most of your child's vision examination. Now, I know that many of you have already been to the offices of an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, and many times you have realized that when you left the office, many times you wondered what happened. There's so many things that go on. There's so many papers that you have to fill out. There's so many signatures that you have to release. And many times, there's so much time that you have to wait that you're exhausted by the time that you get in to see the doctor. We were just speaking to one of the early intervention specialists this evening who stated that she attended an eye exam with one of her families and they went in at 10 o'clock in the morning And they did not even get into the office outside of the reception area until after 12.15. And they didn't leave the office until five and a half hours later. Now you can imagine that a child who has to wait that long is going to be very irritable. They're going to be very tired. And many times when a child is that agitated, by the time that they do get to see the doctor, the child isn't going to be very cooperative. Now, when a child is screaming and biting and fussing and doing all of these other types of things, as a doctor, I could surely tell you it's very, very difficult to get the information that we want to get. So tonight, we're going to talk about a few strategies that would be very helpful as you're scheduling an appointment uh, with your child's doctor. The first thing I just really want to do is to remind you that there are different types of eye doctors. Most children are going to first be seen by a pediatric ophthalmologist. Now, an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor who goes to four years of medical school, and after completing medical school, they often will go to a three- or sometimes a four-year residency program where they learn how to perform eye surgery and to diagnose other types of eye conditions. Now, doctors who want to specialize in children, they go on to a fellowship program, and the fellowship program may specialize in specific areas of pediatrics. So, for example, it might concentrate on cataracts for children, or it might be in vitriol retinal disorders, or it might be in a neurology. Now, the second type of eye doctor that many children will see is what's called an optometrist. Now, I personally am an optometrist, and as an optometrist, many people feel that we do the same thing as ophthalmologists, but the two fields are actually very, very different. In an optometrist's career, we do go to four years of undergraduate, and instead of going to four years of medical school, we go to four years of optometry school where we study all the aspects of the brain, all the different parts of the eye. How is it that we see and what is going to be the relationship between the development of a child and their vision development. Many optometrists will then go on to have a residency and the residency in optometry is where a doctor can specialize in a special area such as pediatrics. In cases where a pediatric optometrist wants to specialize even further, they may then go in and specialize by doing a fellowship. Now, The differences between the two professions are basically that the ophthalmologist is generally there to provide medical treatments. If the child needs medications, if the child needs to have surgery, these are the things that the ophthalmologist really concentrates on. There are many pediatric ophthalmologists in the city of Los Angeles and other cities, and on the average, I would say that pediatric ophthalmologists may see between 30 to 70 patients per day. So they usually are not going to be able to spend as much time with each child or to explain things with the family as compared to perhaps a pediatric optometrist. At our center, the Center for the Partially Sighted, we see about six children a day. So each examination of that child takes about one hour. So one of the major differences that one might experience in having an appointment with the pediatric ophthalmologist versus the pediatric optometrist is first to understand what it is that they do. Now, when you make an appointment with your pediatric ophthalmologist, the main thing that you're really there to ask is what is my child's eye condition? Is there any medication that might be able to help my child? And number three, Is there any particular type of surgery that might help my child? These are the top three questions that you must ask the doctor. Now, in many cases, we often forget to ask these questions. So one of the things that Sue Parker and the staff at the Braille Institute have developed, they have developed a fantastic book. You might contact Sue Parker and ask for one of these books. It's basically a notebook where you could organize all of the papers, and this could make your examination and the office visit much more efficient. On there, on the front cover of it, there's a section where there's questions that you can ask the doctor. And while you're at home, the night before or even days before, write down the questions that you want to ask. What you're really asking the pediatric ophthalmologist is, what is the condition Is there any medical treatment that could be helpful? And is there any surgical treatment that would be helpful? Now in some cases, a pediatric ophthalmologist may be able to tell you much, much more. But in general, most of the time, the pediatric ophthalmologist, they will often use eye drops which dilate the pupils of the eye. Now when the pupils of the eyes are dilated, the children often are not able to see well because when you paralyze the muscle of the eye with these eye drops, they cannot focus. As a result, we cannot expect the pediatric ophthalmologist to be able to tell you what your child is able to see. Remember, the pediatric ophthalmological exam is designed primarily to find out what is the problem and is there any medical treatment that could be done. In contrast, when you see a pediatric optometrist They are going to usually spend much more time with a child because the goals of the optometric examination is to find out, number one, what does the child see? Does the child have the ability to see far? What can the child see when the child focuses close? Does the child have the ability to see colors? Does the child have depth perception? Does the child have the ability to coordinate both eyes together? So, is that child actually seeing single vision or double vision? Is the child sensitive to glare and bright light? Can the child only see black and white, or can the child see different levels of gray? We're also going to take a look at what are some of the other types of processing abilities that the child has. What's the child's depth perception? How is the depth perception affecting reaching or walking? How is it affecting a child's balance? So in the optometric examination, there's many, many more questions that the optometrist is prepared to answer. And the main thing that we're really there to answer is, what does your child see? What types of glasses may be helpful? What types of low vision aids could help? And what types of activities and exercises might help? So overall, these are very, very different types of questions that we are going to ask the different types of eye doctors. Now, the first thing to make the most about your appointment is, again, we talked about getting the notebooks from the Braille Institute that will help to remind you to bring all the specific information. It's also going to ask you to write the questions you want to ask the doctor. We just talked about what types of questions you want to ask the doctor. When you take this notebook, you want to remember that the doctors are almost always going to ask you the same questions. They're going to ask you, was your child premature? Did your child have any kind of birth complications? What was your child's development? When did your child begin to sit? When did your child crawl? When did your child begin to walk or talk? They often ask these kind of developmental questions to get an idea of where your child is on the developmental scale. Also, they're gonna ask you, who are the other doctors that your child has seen? What medications does your child take? What insurance does your child have? So in this booklet that's available through the Braille Institute, it kind of gives you a reminder of all those things to take, and when you have all of those types of things, and you have it prepared to show to the doctor or the nurse It saves a whole lot of time. Now, let's talk about how can you schedule appointment at the best time. I strongly recommend that you call the office or the office manager. And in many cases, you're going to find that offices are very, very busy. I would explain the situation that my child is very, very irritable or that my child is medically ill and that my child does best at a particular time. I think that if you explain that to the office manager, the office manager may often help you in terms of scheduling an appointment. You don't wanna be one of these families that have to wait five hours before the doctor. Now when you do this, many times the office manager or the person scheduling an appointment can tell you what are some of the best times to schedule that appointment. On the other hand, we also have to remember to schedule the appointment at the best time for your child. If you know that your child does best in the early mornings, you want to schedule that appointment early in the morning. Just this past week, I had a mom who called and says, you know, if at all possible, can we have an appointment at 7 in the morning? My baby does best at that time, and I think you'll be able to get the most information. And so that was really very helpful. Even though we typically don't open until 9 o'clock, we came in at 7 o'clock because it allowed us to get the most information possible. You also want to remember that when you do schedule this type of appointment, don't be late. Don't be late. And the reason that I say that is because many times, even though you might have an appointment at 9 o'clock and the doctor is not ready to see you at that time, the manager or the receptionist, they check off your name at the time that you come in. If you don't come in there on time, you often get put to the bottom of the list. And many offices, say double or even triple book, and you might really be the last one there that they call on. So, number two, you don't want to be late. Number three, when you do come in and make this appointment, it's often very, very helpful to do the things that are going to make your child most comfortable. Bring your child's favorite toy a toy that he or she enjoys to be comfortable with. If your child prefers to sit in a car seat or a stroller or whatever they enjoy, bring that so that when they aren't in the office, they're going to be most comfortable. You want to bring some food for your child. Your child may often get hungry and they're going to be fussy. So if you do bring food, a bottle, a drink, it's going to be very, very helpful. One of the things that I recommend, as soon as we go into the exam room, we like the children to have their favorite drink or their favorite food because it often calms them. It's amazing how even the youngest of child, if they have ever been into an eye doctor's office, they recognize it the next time. They recognize the lights. They recognize the different types of chairs. They could recognize the lab coat. If your child has had that type of negative experience too, you might even ask the doctor, you know, would you mind taking off your lab coat because my child just really gets so scared when he sees people in the lab coat. This is another way that the child will be calm and relaxed during that time within the examination. Now, in other types of situations, you may find that the doctors might even cooperate with you. One of the reasons why it takes a long time to get into these appointments is that we often use eye drops. Now, these eye drops, they dilate the pupil of the eye and they paralyze the muscle of the eye to make it easier for the doctor to look inside the eye. Now, it sometimes means that the child has to have two or three sets of eye drops and this in itself could take between a half hour to one hour. So, in some cases, If your child cannot wait, you can talk to the doctor or the doctor's technician and sometimes they would be willing to write a prescription and you can get the eye drops and you might put those drops in at your home. In these types of situations, we often will recommend that the parents will put the eye drops in at about 5 or 5.30 in the morning while the child is still asleep. Okay, And that way they could get the drops into the eyes very easily. Then by the time that the child wakes up or many times the child will wake up with the drops, by 7 o'clock they're ready to be dilated, they are dilated, they're ready to come in so you can make an appointment at 8 o'clock and you're ready to be seen. And this will be a way that you could eliminate a lot of that weight. Another thing that I know that I have instructed our staff to be very, very sensitive is that when a child is medically fragile, then we really try to go the extra step, the extra mile to not make that child wait in the waiting room. For a child who is medically fragile, being around other children could be quite dangerous. They might get a cold. They might get infections. They might touch toys out there that are kind of dirty. You know, in most cases, you really have to be careful because in the waiting rooms, there's a lot of toys. Kids put things in their mouth, and it can be very, very dirty. So you might just ask the office manager, would it at all be possible that we actually have an appointment that we get in right away because my child has a weak immune system or my child is ill, my child has another type of illness and the doctors are often going to be very very sensitive to that. When these doctors and their staff do these things too, I think it's also very very important to truly thank them. You might just simply go in there and say, I really appreciate you doing this. You, I can't tell you how much this means. If if, if you're able to bring in, you know, a, a box of donuts, Five dollars worth of donuts it's something that the staff they really really appreciate or it could just be that after after the appointments over you call back and you just thank them most people don't really do these types of things and I guarantee you the staff will really really appreciate that now when you also have this appointment scheduled I think it's also important to leave the other children at home when you have your other children along with your baby who's going to get their eyes examined, trying to watch and take care of the other children makes things very difficult. It takes your attention away from what the doctor may be saying. So maybe you could have a friend or a relative watch the other children. In addition, it's always good to bring another person with you. Maybe perhaps it's your child's early intervention specialist or your teacher for the visually impaired or maybe your best friend or your husband, or your wife. Bring somebody there with you because when you have two people listening, it's something that one person might hear something that maybe you didn't. It's so common that parents are in such shock when the doctors either tell them that their child has a vision problem or that their child will require surgery or that their child has a vision problem that can't be corrected. These are things that are often extremely shocking And in that emotional state, one has a very difficult time listening. I remember when I was first diagnosed with my condition. It was so interesting that I didn't really remember anything else that he told me after he told me about my condition. There were just so many other things going through my mind that I really didn't listen to a thing that he said. So it's helpful to leave the other children home and to bring one I say to bring one person with you. Don't bring grandma and grandma or the in laws or other things like that because many times they could make things more complicated. Another thing that I also recommend is that I recommend that you bring a cassette recorder. This is something that's very helpful so that as the doctor is explaining his or her findings, you could turn on the recorder. You might simply say, Doctor, would it be okay that I record this because I want to share this with my pediatrician and my physical therapist and my occupational therapist and so on and so forth? It's something that really is very, very helpful. And I find that when people do bring a tape recorder, we often are going to explain things a bit more slowly, a bit more accurately, because of the fact that we know that we are being recorded and that we want to be clear so that everybody who listens to this really understands. When you go into the examination room and you first meet the doctor, I recommend the first thing that you do at that point in time is hand to the doctor that list of questions that you have. Again, depending on which type of doctor that you happen to be seen at that time, you want to ask the questions that are going to be most appropriate. You don't want to give them 25 questions, but I think if you give them 3, 4, or 5 good questions, this is something that they could go ahead and write those answers down for you as well. When we get a lot of patients who do write these questions down, it's real helpful for us because we will write the answers to their questions down as soon as we receive that data and then we take it from there. When you're finished with your examination, I think that it's also very, very important that you go home and you review everything that had happened. You review the answers that the doctor wrote. You want to then review the tape that you heard. And you also want to discuss it with the person that you heard and took with you so that you could hear what they had heard and you can have a plan. One of the things that's very, very important is that you think about what is going to be the next thing that we do. As doctors, we are trained as doctors to identify problems. We identify the problems. As an ophthalmologist, he or she will identify the problem and then try to treat it with medications or surgery. If there are no medications or if there is no surgery, that will correct this. For example, with conditions such as cortical vision impairment, which is the leading cause of vision impairment in children, or optic nerve hypoplasia, which is the fastest-growing cause of vision impairment. These are conditions that there is nothing that the ophthalmologist can do for these conditions. It's very, very frustrating at times because they will tell you, your child has this condition, there is no medication, there's no surgery, and I'm very, very sorry. These parents leave that appointment feeling terrible because they wish that there was something that could be done. And the question that you always then have to ask, is there any place that you could refer me to where I might be able to get more information? These doctors are often going to refer you to places such as the Braille Institute's Child Development Center. Or they may refer you to the Center for the Partially Sighted. Or they may refer you to the Birth to Five Network. Or they may refer you to other different organizations that are related to the school district and so on and so forth. But you have to remember that the ophthalmologists aren't really trained, so they don't know every single resource that's available. All that you expect them to do is to refer you to one. The same thing holds true when you see a pediatric optometrist. The pediatric optometrist is there to try to help you by prescribing glasses or low vision aids or sometimes different types of exercises. But in cases where it's an optometrist in a rural area that doesn't see a lot of children with low vision, they may not know to refer you to specific people within the system. So you then might go ahead and you might ask the doctors the following types of questions. If there is a situation where they say that they do not have a treatment for your child, you might then want to ask them the following questions. Number one, can you refer me to the regional center so that I might be able to determine if there's services available? The regional centers are throughout the United States and they actually manage monies that comes through the federal government to provide services for children who have delays in their development. If a child has a visual delay that's hindering some of their development, the regional center may then offer and pay for specific vision services. If a child has a other condition, such as a neurological condition due to premature birth, the regional center may then also offer that type of assistance. Or if a child has Down syndrome or a genetic condition, cerebral palsy, because of the lack of oxygen, the regional center may also be helpful. So you then have to think about what are the services that are available, and the first step is to ask that doctor, can you refer me to a regional center? They may then write out a little prescription pad and that will help you to get into the regional center more easily. Number two, you might then ask them, do you know whether or not my school is going to provide any types of services? The local school district is also able to provide different types of services for children as young as birth. So these are children who may get early intervention, they may get vision services. So the doctor might also write a note that's going to refer you to the vision services at the school district. He or she just might write it on a small little prescription pad. Or number three, the doctor may then refer you to any other types of programs that might specialize in vision impairment. So depending on the city or the state, there's different types of organizations. And the doctor might write a referral so that you can go and seek help from the Braille Institute, for example, or the Blind Children's Center. So you want to kind of pin that idea into the doctor's mind about the therapy, even though there might not be something that he or she could do within their specialty, such as glasses or eye exercises or medications or surgery. You want to have that question ready as part of your questions what other types of services, what other types of schools, the regional center, other low vision agencies. The reason that this is very helpful is that once the doctor writes it on a prescription, it's going to make it very easy for you to get into the doors there. So overall, there's many different ways that you can make your examination for your child very, very efficient and to get the most out of it. Number one, Remember which type of doctor it is that you're seeing. If it is a ophthalmologist, they are there to answer questions you have about the medical diagnosis, medications, and surgery. Often, after you see a pediatric ophthalmologist, it's recommended you then see a pediatric optometrist who can then attempt to prescribe glasses, low-vision aids, and vision exercises to develop the visual parts of the brain. You want to call the office manager and try to find out what is the best time of the day to schedule that appointment. Remind the office manager if your child has special needs. Maybe your child is fragile. Maybe your child gets sick easily. Or maybe your child could be very aggressive. You want to tell them that, hey, my child gets really agitated and bites other kids. Uh, that probably will be a way that you'll get into the office a little bit quicker and away from the other children. You might want to remember to bring a small gift or a token of appreciation to the office manager who has done that for you. When you do come to the appointment, leave the brothers and sisters and the grandmothers and other people at home, but bring. A good friend or bring your husband or wife or bring somebody who can lend another set of eyes and ears to hear during that evaluation. Bring food and favorite toys or maybe favorite music or favorite videos for the child in the examination room. That often calms them. You also want to bring a cassette recorder so that you could record everything that the doctor says. Most importantly, be very organized put all the medical information that you have, the medications, your insurance cards, and most importantly, a list of the questions you want to ask the doctor. Have all of that ready in the notebook and bring that notebook. Bring that notebook with you to every appointment, whether it's to an eye doctor or a dentist or the pediatrician. This is something that's going to be very, very easy to give the doctors the information they need. Uh, Once you're finished, you want to then go ahead and make certain that the doctor signs a prescription that's going to help your child and you to get into other agencies, such as the regional center, or to the school district, or to a other oral vision organization. So these are the things that I hope you'll find to be helpful. And if you do need some of this information... You could contact Sue Parker Strafasi at the Braille Institute, where they have made a very, very great notebook that you really should consider. You could contact Sue Parker Strafasi at 800, excuse me, 323-663-1111. That's 323-663-1111. Or you could email her at S, S and Sue, Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, Strafasi, S-T-R-A-F-A-C-I, at brailleinstitute.org. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, let's unmute your phones, and we'll open it up to any questions. Okay, to unmute your phones, press star six. Hi there. Does anybody have any questions there? Or any comments or recommendations or suggestions of how to make the most of your child's visit? Dr. Bill, this is true. I just wanted to say, um, you know, if anybody does have interest in these notebooks, we do have them available for people, so feel free to give us a call, and we'll be happy to send one to you. Okay, great. I know. I... I think it's really one of the the most efficient ways to get information to the doctors. And I think another thing that if you're a real ambitious person, I think that you might even create a cover page for your child. Put your child's name, date of birth, the address, you go ahead and put in your telephone number, your home address, email, cell phone, and then just a little thing. When was your child born? Was your child born premature? Were there any complications? Just a short little paragraph that tells the story because you're going to be giving that information to every doctor that you ever mm-hmm. see and then have a list of who are the other doctors that the child has seen. You might list who's the pediatrician, who's the ophthalmologist, who's the cardiologist, etc., and then list the medications and things. So you could often just keep a stack of those. And, and give those out and that saves you a lot of work. Dr. Dill? Yes. This is Nancy. I have I have a couple um, one of the things I've had families do is to put all the business cards together and make a copy of that so that they can give that to the other doctors. Um, and also my children who I see who have optic nerves hypoplasia, what I've recommended anyway is having them have a copy of the pediatric fact sheet on optic nerve hypoplasia and have that included in their medical files. That's a great idea because if you do have, for example, a fact sheet for something such as optic nerve hypoplasia, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of pediatricians that have never seen a child with optic nerve hypoplasia And they're not aware that these children should have their hormones tested because a child with optic nerve hypoplasia may have a hormonal imbalance. So this is something that gives them that type of information. And it saves the doctor a lot of time because the doctor doesn't want to have to go back to the office, search for it on the Internet and things like that. So that's a great idea. And also, I think it's that idea of keeping the business cards inside there and maybe photocopying a page that has all the business cards. That's really great because I know for us, for example, we want to send the report to all the other members of the child's team. And when you have that page with all these addresses, it saves the office a lot of time, and uh, we really like that a lot. So thank you for those, those ideas, Nancy. That's really great. Are there any other uh, suggestions that people people have about making the examination really most efficient? This is Angela from Simi Valley. Hi, Angela. Um, hi. I don't have any suggestions, but I have a question about the eye exercises. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, I specifically, I'm assessing a student right now who has um this psychotic eye movement disorder yes yeah, and um my school district um, doesn't believe in eye exercises so i don't okay um, well that's yeah. a really really a very very that's a very very good question so the one of the things that's um a, a topic that comes up very very often is the concept of eye exercises, which is also known as vision therapy. Now, vision therapy is something that is not new. It became very popular in the 1920s when a doctor, Bates, he invented various types of exercises that could help people who had blurred vision or people who had double vision. So he invented a lot of exercises that a person could perform and it eliminated their problems and it also eliminated the need for a lot of these people to wear an eye patch or to have other types of prism glasses and so on and so forth. Now today, we know that vision therapy is something that's quite popular among optometrists who specialize in vision therapy. Now, vision therapy can correct many different types of visual conditions. A lot of people might think that vision therapy cannot do that, but it's very effective in correcting what is called, number one, amblyopia. Now, amblyopia, it affects about between 1% to 4% of the population of children, and this is when the vision of one eye is blurred, even when you prescribe glasses. The reason that the vision is blurred is because the brain did not receive stimulation. So for amblyopia, it's very interesting because both ophthalmologists and optometrists both believe in doing exercises for children who have amblyopia. The exercises are typically where you will patch the stronger eye to force the weaker eye to look and that in return stimulates the brain. So the first thing is that amblyopia is one of the most common things that vision therapy is used for to treat, and both ophthalmologists and optometrists would agree that patching is a good form of vision therapy to improve the vision of amblyopia. Now where it becomes controversial though is that if a person is older let's say it's a child who is 18 years old, the effectiveness of vision therapy is not as high. In other words, it may take years of this kind of therapy to improve the vision, whereas if you provide the therapy on a one-year-old and you patch that one-year-old between three to four months, then their vision is often corrected. So the point here is that vision therapy is more effective on younger children when it comes to treating amblyopia. Mm -hmm. A second condition that vision therapy is very, very commonly prescribed for is when people have eye coordination problems. When a child reads, the child must cross or converge both eyes on the print, on the book. Now, many children cannot do this And this is something that is called convergence insufficiency. Now, a surgeon, an ophthalmologist, may often say, let's just go ahead and let's adjust the eye muscle. Let's do a little snip and adjust the suture, and we have the problem solved. Now, some parents, they say, I don't want my child to have surgery if they really don't have to. And so an optometrist might then say, why don't we do this? Let's give this child glasses that has prisms, and then the child won't have problems with reading. And then there's other optometrists who specialize in vision therapy and say, well, why don't we just do exercises, and we could strengthen those muscles and teach the brain to coordinate those eyes, and the child won't have to have either surgery or prism glasses. So convergence insufficiency is another very, very successful type of problem that vision therapy can treat. But again, it is more effective the younger that the child is. So in this response, I would say that in my opinion, convergence insufficiency is also very, very successfully treated with vision therapy. Now the third most common thing that we see is tracking saccadic eye movement problems. This is when a child has difficulty moving the eyes from one word to the next when they are reading. Now, vision therapy is absolutely, it is absolutely effective in treating this condition. It's a matter of teaching the child to concentrate and to attend and to move the eyes from one word to the next. Now the controversy that occurs with all of these aspects of vision therapy is that most of the time when a child comes to the school, the parents might then say, my child is not reading very well. They then wonder, why is my child not reading well? Does my child have a dyslexia, a language processing problem? Is my child learning disabled? Or does my child have a vision problem? These are the most common things that parents will think of, and many times they will go to an eye doctor. The eye doctor does these tests, and the eye doctor finds out that the child cannot track accurately. The child's eyes don't accurately move from one word to the next. Now the doctor then says, Aha! I found the problem. Your child cannot read well because he can't move his eyes from one word to the next. Let's recommend a program of vision therapy, and we can fix this. While they do the vision therapy, and three months later, the doctor will check the eyes, and the eyes are now tracking correctly. Now, the parent may then say, My child still is not reading. The reason for that is that the child's cause of the reading problem, it was not the poor tracking, but there was another problem that caused the reading difficulty. It may be that that child has dysphonetic dyslexia. It may be that child has dysidetic dyslexia. It may be that child has a language processing problem. So the reason that this often happens is that there are many eye doctors who are not trained in looking at some of these other areas. They don't screen the child for these other problems so many times, the child is recommended vision therapy to correct the vision problem, but the vision problem really is not the cause of the reading problem. So we see that all the time, and at our center, we get these referrals constantly from the Los Angeles Unified School District where a child has been recommended vision therapy for their reading problem. They've been recommended vision therapy for their attention problem or their hyperactivity. We evaluate these children's vision as well as other components to find out is the vision the cause of it. And in many cases, the vision problem is not the cause of the reading problem. Mm -hmm. So when it gets back to your school, I think that some of the things that they have probably seen is that they have seen offices recommend an expensive program of vision therapy. The parents paid the money for the vision therapy, and the child did not get better. Mm. So the point to this is that in addition to just the eye examination to check the tracking, it's important that the child's word attack skills, the decoding skills, all of these other types of things are evaluated as well. But getting back to the tracking, we often find that tracking is the easiest thing to correct, and we often recommend a home program where there are activities that a child can do to develop the tracking. It may be something as simple as putting pegs into a pegboard in left to right order. It could be you get a word search magazine and have the child just track each letter one at a time. And you may have heard of the Ann Arbor Michigan Tracking Workbooks. These are workbooks that a child can do with the parents, and they can then work and develop their tracking. So in most cases, what I would say, 90% of the cases, tracking problems can be corrected at home with the parents, but if a child has such a behavior problem that they don't do it, then they probably will not be successful. Are there any questions on that? Does that make sense to you, though? Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that that topic in itself could be an hour-long (laughs) lecture. Yeah. Okay. Are there any other questions about anything else? It could be about the appointments. Oh, you know, another thing that I think I failed to state in the presentation is that if your child also has to take medications, remember to take the medications with you like the student or the child that we talked about who was in the office for five hours, five hours, that child might have missed certain medications that he or she needed to take. you got to take those extra diapers. you got to bring all these other things because you really just don't know how long it's going to take. And the really unfortunate truth to it, it is more often than not it's more often than not that I see these young little infants in the offices of many, many eye doctors, where they're there for a good, at least three to four hours. Okay. Are there any other questions? Okay. Well, if not, I want to thank all of you for tuning in this evening, and I'd like to especially thank uh, Ayers LA, Alley, yeah. uh, Mr. Richard Burton, and uh, Joe Yurka for recording this. This podcast is going to be available at AERSLA, which is www.airsla.org, and there you can find every one of the Braille Institute lectures as well as other lectures on pediatrics and other types of podcasts, and it will also be on the Braille Institute webpage at www.brailleinstitute.org. Okay, so thank you for tuning in, and we hope that you'll join us next month when we talk about optic nerve hypoplasia.